It's good to be here, and it's good to be with you, and it's good to have Elias on the chancel again. It's been a little while, but I love seeing you two guys, brothers, uh, worshiping, leading us in worship. Thank you for that. Well, uh, if there is a word that sums up the collective experience we've been having as a culture right now, I think it's the word exhaustion, right? I, I hear it more than any other word, exhaustion. I feel it in myself exhaustion. So it's interesting that one of the ways the Bible refers to the promised land is by the word rest. That's where they're heading, rest. That's where the wilderness takes us when when we do it well, rest. Rest as it turns out is not a place to get to, it's something that you carry with you. That's what I want you to see today. It's not just a a physical location, it's a spiritual experience that we carry with us on the journey. It's available to us, to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And that rest is grace. Someone asked me last week, hey George, how do you know when you've gotten to the end of your wilderness? You know, know you're not gonna be there forever. How do you know when you're out of it? And the answer is when you find your rest in the grace of God, your home. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. So uh, let's see that in Joshua as he now has crossed the Jordan River and they have their you know, first meal that's not manna in the promised land. Uh, open up to Joshua chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 15. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together, whether you're at home or in the room. And I'm going to ask you to keep the book open. In the, in the pew Bible that you're opening there, you'll find our text on page 171. Keep this open as we journey through the text together. Uh, and when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. All right, so listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Joshua 5, verse 13 down to 15. Once when Joshua was was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you one of us or one of our adversaries? He replied, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come now. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, What do you command your servant, my Lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. So the way this happens in my mind, it's it's Jericho um, at night. Israel is camped in the outer fields. Everybody is asleep except for one man uh, who's restless, restless. And that's Joshua. He opens the tent flap and goes out and starts, he takes himself for a walk. Just kind of that anxious pacing walk. He's got a lot on his shoulders, doesn't he, in this moment. And he, he walks, he loses track of where he is. And all of a sudden there's a man, a man. And, and, and the flash of a sword in the moonlight. Oh gosh, now he's you know, in trouble. So he wants to know who is this man, friend or foe? And a lot of people try to guess at who this figure is. Maybe some say he's an angel. 
Maybe some say he's the angel of the Lord, which is an angel who sometimes speaks as an angel, but sometimes speak directly as the Lord. Maybe this is even some say uh, a pre-incarnate visitation of the son of God. But the man himself introduces himself as a general, right? I come to you now as the commander of the army of the Lord. He's a general. This is, this is one general speaking to another general. And so it's interesting that Joshua as general of the army, armies of Israel responds the way he does. He surrenders. That's his response. Notice that. He surrenders to this general. He throws himself on, on the ground. Joshua, here's the way I would say it, lets this figure win a victory over him because he understands this is a figure who wins a great victory for him and who can win a victory in him. As he throws himself on this ground, this ground that is called holy ground, all of a sudden there's an experience of rest. Rest. Deep rest. So let me share three things with you about this rest. This is the rest that comes from, first of all, a victory for you. A victory for you is the rest that comes from knowing your greatest battle has already been won. And that right now today, wherever you stand, you stand in grace. Because it looks like at first Joshua needs to be reminded of this. Like he's somehow forgotten. Because there's, there's this question. He has this telling question. He asks two questions. And the first telling question that he asks this man is, well... Uh, whose side are you on? Which side are you on? You know, this is what a good general would probably ask of someone. Are you an ally or an adversary? Are you with me? Are you against me? Because I'm going to either enlist you or I'm going to resist you. And the uh, other general says what? Neither. Uh -uh. That's the wrong question. Because this battle, the great battle, it's not your battle. This fight is not your fight. And remember, Joshua will learn this. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord your God fights for you. He, he probably in this instant goes, oh yeah. And he remembers the words that Moses had spoken in Exodus 14, 14. Right at the beginning of this whole thing. Just as the wilderness begins. Moses is so clear about this. He's, he says, and remember Joshua is just, just a kid at this point. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to keep still. Your job is to rest. Your job is to stand in grace because the Lord fights and wins the greatest victory on your behalf. So I got an email recently from one of you and I got permission to share, share it with all of you. And uh, this woman writes, the messages on going through the wilderness, aging well in grace and not letting a root of bitterness spring up in our hearts during this difficult pandemic time have been so meaningful to me. And the emphasis on nurturing our hearts to keep them oriented toward God and his grace, just vital. I am especially sensitive to this, she writes, because sadly my own parents did not do this. Though they were both believers, they did not nurture their hearts during the last 20 years or so of their lives. And when they died, they were bitter and angry, blaming my sisters and brother and me for not keeping them alive as though that was ever something we would have been able to do. 
It's a really difficult legacy and one all four of us still struggle with. So I've been sending sermon links to one of my sisters and the Lord is healing us. Wow, thank you, that's amazing to hear that. I got another email from another member who wanted to tell me about another member who ran a skilled nursing center for seniors. And this nurse, she had this axiom, she says, over time, we either sweeten or sour. Over time, we either sweeten or sour. And she ought to know. I mean, she was working with people at the end of their lives. And, and I think there's some real truth to that. And what she did, she helped her team help their clients sweeten. That was the way she trained them. It, what she knew was what makes a difference between whether we sour or sweeten is our experience of grace. Grace makes the difference. So what is grace? Well, let's just remember. We, we might need reminding, just like Joshua needs reminding. On this journey earlier, we, we were at Mount Sinai and we read in Exodus 33 about Moses as Israel's representative getting this experience of grace. And there we learned this. Grace is a place for the undeserving in the honor of God. Grace is a place for the undeserving in the honor of God. Uh, remember at Sinai, God's people, they were in full rebellion. God's uh, making the rules and they're at the very same moment breaking the rules. These are rule breakers, it turns out. And God has to make a decision. What am I gonna do about my people? And he makes the decision to embrace and honor rule breakers. There it is, right at Mount Sinai. And so we get a little example of, of uh, this grace we, when the Lord hides Israel's representative Moses in the cleft of the rock, hides that, them from his judgment. And another illustration, uh, the book of life and in Moses' prayer, the Lord points to Jesus who would blot his known name out of the book of life so that God could write in our names, the names of these rule breakers. This is grace, this is grace. For Joshua, the general, grace is a battle that somebody else fights and wins for you. They've just celebrated the Passover, by the way. If you look at the chapter and just read before, they've just celebrated the Passover feast. They've been reminded of the exodus, uh, that experience of grace. It points us forwards to the cross of Jesus Christ. I like the way the New Testament says it, for if while we were yet en enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? While we were yet enemies, this is this picture of all of us on the battlefield, on the wrong side, armed to the teeth against goodness, against justice, against righteousness, against God. And in that moment, we are rule breakers and God says, you know what? I am going to reconcile myself to them and them to me. I am going to embrace Forgive and honor rule breakers, even enemies. And this is the great news of the gospel. This is what makes the ground under Joshua's feet uh, holy. He's won the greatest battle. He's created a place for the undeserving. That's what the promised land is, physically speaking, for Joshua. And I love this, by the way, if you just look up the page a little bit, verse nine, I love this. It's one of my new favorite verses. The Lord says to Joshua, today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. Isn't that a great, I've, the disgrace that was on you, I've just rolled it away. It's not enough that the Lord gets them out of Egypt. He's like, I've taken the stench off you as well. 
oh my gosh, this is the disgrace of the victim. This is the disgrace of the perpetrator. This is the disgrace of sin and guilt and shame. Just rolled away like a stone from the tomb. And the Lord says, come out. Come out, loved ones. Stand on my grace. Stand and rest. Your greatest battle has already been won for you. That's rest. Secondly, we experience rest because we also have a victory that he wins in us. A victory in you. This is the kind of rest that comes from knowing that the victory of the greatest battle is at work somehow in every battle. So those who stand in grace are next invited to sit in grace. In the face of whatever conflict, whatever challenge, whatever pain, whatever crisis you face today. See, Joshua asks a second question and it's also a telling question. In verse 14, he essentially says, so what do you want me to do? Which gives this man an opportunity to set a new agenda for Joshua. To set a new agenda and offer him a new way of engaging that agenda. I find myself at the end of a day, oftentimes I come home and I'm just cranky and think it's because uh, there were more things on my to-do list than I got done in that day. And I just find myself frustrated. If you're, any of you to-do list makers, do you make lists? Oh my gosh. I make way, I put so many things on the list at the beginning of the day that I'm bound to be depressed by the end of the day. <laughs> and I, I've come to think maybe that's my fault. Maybe I'm setting my agenda rather than letting Jesus set the agenda for me because Jesus knows what I can do, what I can't do, what I have energy for, what I don't have energy for, I have gifts for, I don't have gifts for. He knows. So I, I should be asking Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you command me to do? Uh, in the same way that Joshua does here. One of my favorite verses for a while now is Isaiah 30, 15. Here the Lord says to Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Oh, that is so good to hear that. Last week my wife went to Florida to celebrate her mom's 94th birthday and uh, she left early in the morning. I drove her to the light rail station. I got all this feedback after the first service. People were like, why didn't you drive her to the airport? I, drive, I drove her to the light. I thought I was doing a good deed, driving her to the light rail station. Get off my back and don't send me an email about that. <laughs> I had a lot of work to do that day. And honestly, I was kind of in a foul mood. I thought I was being super. She was going to take an Uber, okay? She knows. She, it was Thursday. It's my sermon writing day. So I was cranky. So I drove her to the light rail. And she was kind of cranky too. She probably didn't want to leave me, of course. Who wouldn't? <laughs> And, I, and then I went back and I, so I went to work early that day and I just sat in my chair and kind of stewed for a while. Well, a couple hours later, same chair, I haven't moved. There's a ping and it's a text message and it's from Anne. And it's two words, sursum corda. And you know what she meant by that? I knew immediately what she meant by that. Her plane had just broken through the cloud cover and the darkness and the gloom of Seattle and all of a sudden she's right there in the sunshine. And so she sends me a picture of this. Let me see if I can show you on the screen. There it is. This is like looking, you can see the wing there. This is a, a, three, a 737. Uh, she's looking out there, there's Rainier, the clouds, the, the light is just blinding. Now it's the same 
place in time and space that I am, right? I'm there in my gloom. She's there in coach in her glory, you know? And, 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 and what she was saying is, George, just lift up your hearts because right above you, it's Southern California right now, even though you're in Seattle. And then this, is, this is the invitation um, to find our rest in Jesus, to lift up our hearts through the pain and gloom and sorrow and darkness, lift them up and know that right now, right now, there's victory. And if we can find our rest in that victory, we can bring it back down to the challenges we face here. This is what Joshua is learning. And, you know, set your mind on the things above is what the apostle says. This is Colossians 3, 1 through 13. Paul is saying your true reality isn't the one you see. Your true identity isn't the one you discover inside. You have to look above. You have to set your mind above. So this is what he says. He says so he's speaking to Christians. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The greatest battle has already been won and your general, Jesus, is seated the right hand of God in the place of honor and if you're a Christian faith in Jesus you also are seated in him that's the real you that's your real Thursday that's where it's really happening right above so sit your minds there so now that doesn't mean we don't do anything it doesn't mean I set aside my work no what it does mean is that we do our work from a deep place of rest And and that's a difference believe me you see, this is the difference for the Christian. We're not working to get our rest. We're working from our rest. Do you know the difference between those two things? I mean, everybody around you is working for the weekend, working for graduation, working for retirement. Someday everything will be okay. That is not the Christian. The Christian doesn't work to get rest. The Christian works from our rest. To work to get your rest, there's a theological term for that, by the way. It's called works righteousness. And it never works. It'll only make you more exhausted, right? Because it's built on a lie that the more you work, the more you'll rest, or the better your rest will be, or something like that. No, the more you work, the more exhausted you get. That seems obvious to me, but not really. The Christian understands, by grace I have been saved. The Christian lifts up her heart to the Lord, sursum corda, and as her, through the, the imagination and the witness of scripture, breaks through the cloud, we go, oh my gosh, yes, I'm saved by grace. The greatest battle has already been won and I wasn't the one who had to win it. I have a savior. I am God's workmanship, prepared in advance for his works. I just have to walk in them. Being up here now, in the bright sunshine, in the blinding sunlight of God's grace, now I, I feel rested and I bring that rest now beneath the clouds and I engage my work from that seat. See, it's a different place to sit. I think of this as the greatest resignation. Have you been reading about the great resignation? People leaving their jobs? Just in, in, I think of this as the greatest resignation. Have you ever noticed that someone who really never liked their job or never really liked the people that they work with, suddenly, once they make up their mind they're gonna resign, they get happy and they start loving their job 
And they start, the people that they were cranky with, they're like really friendly and nice with. Why? Because they've decided six months from now they're leaving. And they're doing their best work at that point. What is that? It's resignation. Internal resignation. The same job, but the heart now has changed. The way that they engage that work has changed. And this is what the Lord is calling Joshua to. You could resign your job. You could do that if you want. Or you could just resign the way you do your job and engage it now from a place of grace. Christian Wyman, the poet, professor, and tragically the man who's faced the most severe form of cancer, wrote, Christ's life, the one that's seated above, is not simply a model for how to live, but the living truth of my own existence. I'm going to hold on to that one. Christ's life is the living truth of my own existence and yours too. Come, loved ones, sit. Come, sit and rest. Abide in Jesus. The Lord is your strength. It is his fruit that makes your work fruitful. You know, your job is not to save the world. Your job is to expose the the work of the one who is the savior of the world. And that's Jesus The victory of the great battle is at work in every battle. Sit in grace. Okay, third, rest. There's a kind of a rest that comes from a victory over you. Now, hang on with me. This is challenging. It's a victory over you. There's a kind of rest that that, that comes in the presence of the one who is remaking us in the image of the great victor himself. And he invites us to kneel in grace. Between the two telling questions that Joshua asked this man, he throws himself down, face down to the earth in worship. I imagine like an oblate in the shape of a cross. There he lies. And this is an indication to the reader that something deeply transformational is happening in this scene. You you know, just kind of, wow, okay, whoa, something dramatic right there. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. One of our former pastors at UPC, Bruce Larson, he he noted that on Fifth Avenue in New York City, there are two buildings across the street uh, that have sculptures. On one side of the street, there's a just very tall office building with a giant courtyard and a huge sculpture of Atlas holding the world on his shoulder. You know Atlas, the strongest man who ever lived, and yet he's doubled over, like two stories high, holding this big orb of the universe because the gods have condemned him to carry it on his own shoulder and the corpuscles are popping and his muscles are straining. And you know, that's one way you could live. You can live that way if you want. Or you can cross the street and you can go into St. Patrick's Cathedral on the other side. And there, I'm told, if you walk past the altar, there's a little shrine back uh, in the corner and there's a little Jesus there. Jesus is a child, like eight or nine years old, and he's holding the world in his hand, kind of like a tennis ball. (laughs) Just absolutely effortless, right? And so that's a choice. I mean, you can carry the world on yourself, Or you can bring the world, the world and your world to Jesus and let him hold it. That's that's the invitation. Now, Joshua makes the choice. He surrenders. He throws himself before, we would say, Jesus. And here's my question about this text I found as I was studying it, really intrigued by a couple elements. First of all, it's the sword. Why the sword? And it's a drawn sword. Do you notice that? This, this man's got his sword out. What does that mean? And then what does it mean that 
God chooses not to be your ally or your adversary, or perhaps both your ally and your adversary. And then this business of holy ground, the taking off your sandals, there's a real mystery. What, what is that holy ground thing? Well, the sword is not to destroy, but to transform. One theologian, Rudolf Otto, speaks of the holiness. He says, the holiness is, is that thing that so fascinates us, we can't get away from it. Yet it's also the thing that threatens to destroy us. And that, that's a great description of holiness. It so fascinates us, we can't get away from it, but we also realize there's real threat to us. And there's that sword. Now that sword is, as I say, it's not to destroy him. It's actually to heal him. It's the power of God in the hand of God to carve away anything that is unholy in Joshua's life. I am not your ally, the man says, but I'm not your adversary. I'm your king. (laughs) I'm remaking you in my image. This is why I say, once God has won the greatest victory for you, he won't be done until he's won a great victory over you, you personally. A.W. Tozer, the great pastor of the last century, wrote that there's a veil over our hearts. And he writes this because, you know, the moment that Jesus dies on the cross and he breathes his last breath, the scriptures tell us there was a veil in the temple that is torn in half, just from, from top to bottom. It's a curtain that's torn over the Holy of Holies. Not so much to let us into the Holy of Holies, but to let God's holiness out now, to roam throughout all of creation and to bless and to heal and to renew it. And A.C.W. Tozer says, well, there's a veil, not just in the temple, there's a veil in our hearts. And it's there until we surrender at the cross. He calls that veil self, the veil of self. He writes, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. We must bring our self-sins to the cross for judgment. To be specific, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of other things like them. By the way, this is the pursuit of God, um, which I think is in the public domain. It's very brief, you could read this. But the sword, notice the sword showing, it flashes here, the sword is the cross. It's God's grace drawing us in. It's irresistibly attractive, but it's also dangerous because it's liberating us from ourselves. This is the self that we don't celebrate. This is the self that we confess, nail to the cross and leave behind. And Tozer says again, on our part, there must be surrender to the spirit of God for his work is to show us the father and the son. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It's not something that orthodoxy does. Just getting your beliefs straight will not do this. This is about an encounter, a personal encounter with the living God coming into the presence of Jesus, the man sent from heaven. So come. Why do we tarry, Tozer writes, in the outer courts when God invites us into the holy of holies? So come, come loved ones, with Joshua to kneel before the one to whom Joshua points. You know the the name Joshua means the Lord saves and the Greek form of that name is Jesus. Jesus is Joshua. Jesus is the Lord who saves. Come kneel and rest. Let the victor reign over you. Kneel in grace. 
So back to that question somebody asked me, how do you know when you're through your wilderness? Joshua tells us, when you find rest in the grace of Jesus, you're home. Now I know the struggle is not over. Not now, not for a while perhaps. We're still in the wilderness. But we're praying our disappointments. We're working the desert cardio. And we're growing. We're growing in grace. But all the way along, starting today, we have the, the, the privilege of carrying his rest. Whoever we are, wherever we go, whenever we need it. This reminds me of an old hymn by Jean Sophia Pidgett. It was an Irish uh, writer and who lost her brother as a missionary in China, tragically. Um, and yet, in the midst of that wilderness, she didn't grow bitter. She writes these words, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the, the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee as thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Several years ago, Johnny Erickson Tata was singing this song. Actually, you may have heard in Kirkland, Washington. She was here for a conference or something. And she went out to dinner at the Old Country Buffet in Kirkland. And uh, it was early, so it was kind of an empty uh, restaurant that night. And instead of saying grace as a prayer, they decided to sing, this group of people. So they, they sang this exact hymn. And it's interesting that she chose to sing this hymn because if you know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata, you know that she has every reason to be bitter. Right, when she was 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She, she's now and has been paralyzed from the shoulders down. Her whole life has been wilderness. But day by day, year after year, <laughs> confoundingly, Johnny Erickson Tata just grows in grace. Years later, after this dinner in Kirkland, she got an email from a woman who had been sitting at another table who later that night had had conversation with them and they actually sang together for a while in the restaurant with other Christians as it filled. Yeah, there are Christians in Kirkland. (laughs) And she got an email from somebody who had been at that other table. This woman writes, Dear Johnny, I don't know if you will ever realize how much our time together meant to my elderly parents, especially to my mother. When we sang, I believe that Jesus was standing there in our midst, blessing us all. Holy ground. Holy ground. And Johnny would later write that there's a lesson in that. She says, you need to learn to sing your way through suffering. You need to learn to sing your way through suffering. And the hymn ends this way. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Ever lift your face upon me as I work and wait for thee, resting neath your smile, Lord Jesus. Earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face, keep me ever trusting, resting. Fill me with your grace. Are you resting in Jesus today?
he invites you, come to me. He says, come to me, all, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, Jesus says, come to me. Come, brothers and sisters, let's pray for one another. After the service, our prayer team will be down front if you're in the room. Those of you on the chat have an opportunity to just hit the button, join us in our prayer team. Come, say yes to Jesus. If you haven't given your life to him and known the fullness of this grace, come and stand in that grace now and for all of eternity. He's won the greatest battle ever for you. Come to upc.org slash Jesus if you're hearing this later. I mean, what good is it if he's won a great victory for you but hasn't won a victory over you? Come and surrender to the one who loves you more than anyone else. Oh, I urge you, come to him. Come with the rest of us rule breakers. You'll be in good company. Does Jesus not have grace for you? Come with Moses and Miriam. Come with Joshua and Rahab. Covenant breakers all gathered at the foot of Sinai, gathering now around the cross. Loved ones, come to him. Come and unburden yourself at the cross. Pour out the self-sins and kneel in the sacrificial love of your king. Find your rest in him. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, Never has it brought more joy to surrender to a king. Pray now, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we might have an encounter in your living presence. Thank you for sending this word to us just as you sent a man from heaven so you have sent the living word of God, Jesus, to us and we claim his presence right near in our our midst. We cannot see him with our eyes but we acknowledge he is here in this room and before him we bow our, our hearts our heads, before him we kneel. This is holy ground. While we're here, Lord Jesus, do business with us. Will you speak to us? Will you threaten us in the way that only your love can do? Will you heal us in the way that only your grace can do? We pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen.